In this podcast, Pamela Brenchik talks to Michelle Lincoln, the Executive Dean of the Faculty of Health at the University of Canberra. So let's start. Why did you decide to study speech pathology? So I would like to say that, you know, it was a passion <laughs> around communication, but it wasn't actually. It was a, at the time, it was a, a naive choice I made as a school leaver. I didn't really know much about it. I had considered a whole range of things and I really, I'm not really all that sure why I was drawn to it, I think, actually. I think at that time it was important that it was vocationally driven, that there was a job at the end of it. But largely, largely a naive decision. Luckily it worked out for me though. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Can you see digital health changing the academic landscape in the coming years? And if so, I think it will how? Be uh, yeah, I think digital health will be uh, and should be pervasive in educational offerings in health uh, and in research. I don't think there's a way that anyone is going to be able to avoid that or should avoid it, actually. So right now we're thinking a lot about how we embed digital health across all of its diversity into all of our health curriculum. So for nurses, physios uh, and all of the allied health professionals because the environment in which they work will be increasingly digital and yeah. so those skills. It will be a foundation skill, I think, going forward. In terms of research, there are endless questions that need answering, and so it will become part of the research questions and the kinds of treatments we design, but it will also become part of the method. So how we do our research will be increasingly digital, uh, and if nothing else, COVID has proven that. The only significant research in health that was able to go ahead in COVID was either about COVID or was through a digital method where you didn't have to be in close proximity to your subjects. Yes, yes. Yeah, so I think it will be pervasive going forward. And the challenge is for universities to uh, get ahead of that curve, I think, and to make sure that the, the graduates are adequately prepared. And that means having our staff actually up and across those things as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think in terms of staff you'd have to bring in expertise to adjust the teaching or design curriculum? Yeah, so there's two things, isn't there? There is about the delivery of the curriculum, which, <laughs> you know, all universities move all, virtually all their offerings online in the space of two weeks, and probably previously we would have thought that might have taken two years, so that's interesting. <laughs> I think the challenge now is that students have been very grateful that we move so quickly to be able to allow them to continue to progress, but their expectations will change over time. So they're being grateful and flexible and forgiving, I guess, <laughs> around that delivery mode. But as time goes on, they will have higher expectations, as they should, about the quality of how we teach online. So that's a challenge, I think. So there's a big need for professional development. And, that, you know, that has already started, but this has really brought it into very sharp focus around how to teach effectively online. Uh, so there's that aspect of it, the how we teach. And then the second aspect of it is what we teach in terms of digital health mm -hmm. um, across using health system data to make evidence-based decisions in real time, virtual delivery of services and use of apps and remote monitoring and all those sorts of things. So it's actually, it's actually a very good way digital health and so there's a lot to think about in terms of embedding it in curriculum. Yeah. What do you feel the challenges and opportunities will be for the University of Canberra in the next five years? 
Mm. Let's start with the opportunities. <laughs> I think that's maybe a place to start. Yeah. I think particularly in health, the good story about COVID is that the role and the importance of health professionals in our community is really in sharp focus. And what we would expect to see is a surge in demand into health courses, both at the professional qualifying level, but I also think at the advanced learning level. So people will be looking to top up their skills uh, and their knowledge and to perhaps change course slightly. And so I think that there will be an opportunity there. Um, what will matter is about having the right sorts of courses available that people want to do. And they might not be what we traditionally have always thought people would want to do in health. So understanding that market and what the demand is is going to be really critical. I think that people will be much more likely to consider online learning, um, perhaps in that postgraduate market than they may have previously as well. So I think there's opportunities there. Uh, and for the University of Canberra, which our reputation is about um, graduate employability, people who are work ready, practical applied, we're well positioned to be able to capitalise on that opportunity, I think. At least in the short term, the domestic market is going to be really important. Re-engaging seriously with that, understanding it, again, knowing what people are looking for and what they want in our domestic market, I think, is an opportunity. Uh, and it's actually a good one. That's a good story for Australia, actually. We have focused on the international market a lot. And so bringing that conversation back around to our domestic market, I think, will be important. And so for me, the logical thing there is about engaging with local um, industry about the sorts of graduates they, they need and they're looking for and making sure we have our, have the right alignment of courses for that as well. Yeah, yeah. What do you think the needs are going to be in industry in the next five years? I think there's going to be a focus on uh, health and wellbeing and stuff. I think that was coming, but it's really come like a train now. Without a workforce that's well and functioning well, it's very difficult to be resilient during change. And so I think there'll be a really increased focus on that. I think industry is likely to want shorter, bite-sized courses, things that give people just-in-time learning for new areas they need to move into. And I think there'll be a willingness to support people to do that over time. I think everybody is going to be interested in infection control <laughs> and how you design workplaces for that uh, and ways of working. I don't think that's a short-term thing. I think that's going to live in our memories for some time and mm -hmm. expertise in that area is going to be um, looked for mm -hmm. in all kinds of industries, in fact. Yeah. Interesting. That's just a few. I'm sure there are a lot more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. 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 Challenges. <laughs> I mean, the obvious one for universities is the financial challenge that's ahead of us right now. Yep. And it, while it's a challenge, it does give you an opportunity to think really carefully about what you're doing and consider everything. Everything goes on the table in terms of what should we stop doing, what should we continue doing, and what should we start doing. And so... There's nothing like the situation we're in now to really sharpen your thinking around that strategic thinking, and it gives an impetus to move slow, to move quickly, or more quickly than you might have normally. And so, that challenge will hopefully unearth opportunities. I think we're going to have a challenge, as I said, around online teaching quality with our students and their growing expectations in that space, and making sure we can keep up with that or even hopefully get ahead of it. This is a challenge, and I don't know how, how much of a concern it will be, but having had everybody working remotely, bringing people back and 
rethinking how we work, I think is going to be a challenge. I am naturally a person, people person, and so I actually like to have people in front of me. And yet I've heard from so many of my colleagues how helpful they found being able to work from home more. Yeah. And getting that right balance, I think, is going to be tricky. Yeah. I also think, you know, we went into um, everyone working from home when we had existing teams and relationships and ways of working in place. And so in a way that facilitated it. We just kept on doing what we were doing but online. But as time goes on and we bring new people in and we have to form new teams and interesting. new yeah. I just wonder how that's going to go. Yeah, yeah, good point, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it might not be a challenge at all, but it it could be. <laughs> yeah, to, to give people a sense of belonging, I think. Mm. Yeah. That's right. Uh, it's belonging and uh, a deep level of engagement with the organisation or the institution and how you get that when people aren't coming on campus. Yeah, yeah, um, very interesting. I have an uneasy feeling about that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah very interesting. But that might be old-fashioned. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the university. I actually, I actually yeah. share that concern around students as well, that if they're entirely online, it changes the nature of their relationship with the institution, I think. Oh, definitely. I mean, I even go back to looking at my life at university and my daughter and son's life at university. They don't have campus life like they had campus life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And will they want that, I wonder? Or yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Mm. Mm. The university is currently in the process of building new clinical training facilities in Bega, Kuma and Maria. How do you think these new facilities will benefit clinical education of students once open? I think they will be uh, of enormous benefit to uh, our students, our health students, but I'm also hoping to our education students and perhaps our business students and other students in the university. I also think they'll be of benefit to um, those regional communities. And so for our students, more of them will be able to, in an affordable way, spend extended periods of time learning the practical skills of health in the health system in southern New South Wales. Accommodation, cost of accommodation is always a, a barrier for students to be able to travel. And so with the clinical training facilities, we're building student accommodation, which will be low cost. Uh, and, of course, those areas of the South Coast, some of them are quite close to the beach, and so students never afford to be there in summer, for example, uh, which is actually the busiest time in the health system. So um, we're hoping to be able to embed students there year-round in an affordable way. In terms of students learning, being embedded in a service in a community, I think, is a different way of learning understanding a community and their needs and then the services that need to come um, to support that is really important in, in a different way from what you might learn in a major tertiary hospital mm -hmm. people in from all around the place mm -hmm. i also think in those sorts of regional placements students uh, will often uh, learn a wider range of skills uh, a more diverse clients to work with communities types of um, health issues that they will get experience with the other thing that i'm hoping uh, and we will we'll do some deliberate things around professional education, but also simply being in the same space, 
So our, the, our University of Canberra Health students will be in the same spaces as the ANU medical students and potentially students from other universities as well in those clinical training facilities. There will be informal interprofessional learning as well as formal interprofessional learning. And then there's the fact that they will mostly be living together in shared spaces, which will also result in a lot of informal and professional education as well. So in some ways, in my experience, it's been easier to do interprofessional education in regional placements for students. Interesting. Metro ones. Yeah. 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 Co-location is part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, I was chatting to a lady a little while back who did a clinical placement in Orange, and she was from Sydney, and she loved it so much she never left. She stayed yeah, yes. right. Yeah. So, I mean, that could be a spin-off benefit as well, I suppose. Oh, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I guess the overarching um, strategy here is to help Southern New South Wales build their health workforce so to have a regular supply, reliable supply of nurses and midwives, DOs and radiographers, clinical psychs, the works, which is a challenge for them at the moment. Mm. And the way that we need to do that, and we know, is that we need to recruit students from those areas into our yeah. 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 So a great clinical placement can change the minds of some students, but actually recruiting students from the regional areas is the best-known strategy. And one of the best ways for recruitment is to permeate those communities with our students. Yeah. We'll be out, so, so they're on placement, but they're also in the supermarket. They're also, you know, in the pub, <laughs> in the restaurants out in the community, often they'll volunteer while they're there. They might do some career development work in schools while they're there. And so having school leavers have the opportunity to interact with young, interesting, energetic university students is a really good thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and having those facilities down through southern New South Wales will increase our visibility and just allow us to do more of that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exciting. Very yeah, exciting. it is really exciting. It yeah. is. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, COVID has delayed things a little bit, but we will be uh, hopefully opening those facilities at the end of September. Oh, good. How important is engaging and managing stakeholders to be an effective leader? How important is it? I think it's crucial and it's an integral part of the role. And I see it very much as a two-way relationship in that if you want to have uh, curriculum and research that is going to have an impact and be translated into practice or policy, then you really need to be engaged with your stakeholders because that's where the ideas will come from for what you need to be focused on. And ultimately, they're the ones that do the translation and where you will have the impact. And so a great stakeholder is someone who will give you frank and fearless feedback and will help you uh, know what's coming, what they see coming down the track and so you're able to respond to that in a timely way. I think that's absolutely vital. One of the challenges in health is there are just so many stakeholders <laughs> and keeping up with them is tricky. The other side of that is that sometimes the benefits of a close relationship with a university is not as obvious to stakeholders as you might think it would be and so it takes time, I think, for people to appreciate what they might get out of a relationship with the university and for both parties to understand each other, to develop trust and to really be able to acknowledge the strengths and what each group might bring to the party. And so, again, that, that's a process that takes a bit of time but that's really important because I, we can have an impact through those stakeholder relationships if 
we ask the right questions in the first place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you ask questions that aren't of any relevance to them, they'll ignore what you find, basically. Fair enough, actually. But if you get that relationship right, then you have this amazing and, and really impactful way of changing things. And, of course, you both want the same thing in that context. You know, you both might want a better service delivery model or you both might want some technology that meets a particular need. And if you're on the same page and together you can shape that and then, you know, do the research that gets the outcome you need that they can then implement, then you've got a really great cycle going on. Mm -hmm. I, I do think it's really crucial and I think sometimes we underestimate how much time we need to give to that to make it work properly. Mm. Mm. Who's inspired you the most in your career? Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, that's a tricky question, actually. I think there's been many people, just depending on the stage of my career that I've been at, and I've had, I've had quite a lot of different mentors at different times for different purposes and different reasons that have helped me get to a different place. And so often it's those mentors, that's why I would go to them actually, uh, is because there's something about them that's inspiring me or they're in the place that I want to be next. Yeah, I, I guess there's not someone I would want to directly name, you know, yeah. as in yeah. inspiration, but I make sure that I have people around me who I can learn from mm. and who who help me create the vision of what's next is maybe a good way to say it. Mm. Mm. When you're recruiting for senior staff to join your team, what are the key attributes you look for in the person, apart from technical skills and experience? Yeah. So at a, a senior level, it's almost a given that someone has those technical skills and expertise. And so it's what beyond that are they going to bring? And I am often looking for people who have a really good understanding of the future and where we need to go. So that ability to look forward and understand how we need to move. Because uh, in health, we're changing all the time. Things are changing so quickly that it needs to be someone who's not about the status quo and it's not about meeting accreditation requirements or it's not about compliance. It, it needs, for me, that person needs to have a level of vision and understanding of what's likely for that professional group or in that area of expertise. And I think that has to be grounded in good knowledge of the sector. You know, in health more than anything else, people need to continue to be engaged with the sector so that their researches, education approaches are relevant in conversation with those people in the sector so that they have that view about this is where things are going next. And then I'm looking for qualities around generosity. I think leaders have to be generous. I think they have to want to facilitate and help other people and their careers and be interested actually far more in other people than themselves. <laughs> Hard to get in an interview, actually, that quality but that's, actually, that's really important to me. And then I guess things that you would hear lots of people say, I think it is really important that uh, people can take a team role and an institution-wide perspective. While we, are, while we hire people for their technical expertise and their professional expertise, at a, a level of, in a leadership position, you have to be able to step outside of that and take an institution 
wide or faculty-wide perspective as well. Uh, people skills, some courage, uh, innovation. <laughs> it sounds like endless list, and you might not get all of them in one person, but I see some of them. And then it, I see my role as a leader to understand what people's strengths are and to to give them roles and responsibilities that align to those strengths. So if I, you know, if you saw two out of four of those things, that'd be great. You could work with that <laughs> and and really have a great a great um, relationship and and help that person to really fly. Yeah, yeah. What are your top tips for aspiring leaders? <laughs> oh, that's a funny question because I still think I am one of those. <laughs> um, oh, I think you have to have a strong sense of self and to understand what drives you. And I think this is probably an unusual thing to say that goes along with a sense of self, and that is to not, I guess, take things personally. When I say not taking things personally, it's about having the resilience to not be injured by the, the things that you that come to you as a leader and to be able to take a perspective about where that person is in their life and their journey and to understand where that might, might have come from and to not take it personally. You have to take feedback but not to be personally offended and injured by things, I think. I, we might have talked about that before as being kind of tough. Uh, but I don't think it's that because the toughness suggests a deflection and I don't think you want to do that. You want to reflect about why am I getting this feedback? Is it genuine? Is it about me? Do I need to change? Or is it more about the other person and where they're at in their life? For me, leadership is all about people and relationships with people. And so uh, it does take up a lot of your time. And I, I think that might have been something I've learned along the way is that if 80% of my budget is salaries, 80% of my time probably should be on people. <laughs> and um, that's okay if that's what it is. Yeah. Um, it's the conversations you have with people that's the work, really. It's how you change people's perspectives. Uh, it's how you point them in the direction you need them to go. They're just It's just really crucial. Uh, and I think we don't maybe value that enough. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if there was a tip in there, Pam, was there? Was there a tip in there? I'm just like saying, you know, have a sense of self. Don't don't take things too personally. Oh, I think the other thing I would say is to, particularly in academia, that pay to try things out. You know, you can, you can be an associate dean and see if you actually like that sort of work and you want to keep doing it. Uh, and if you don't, you can go back to a regular academic role, but you won't know if you don't give it a try. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not on the the quest on, on the question, but just more for my own personal interest and as a woman myself, I think it's it's fair to say that it's that much harder for women to make it into senior leadership roles. What is your advice to other women, I mean, you, you must have come across obstacles along your journey. How did you overcome those? Yes, although I think in health it tends to be female-dominated, so they're prob it's probably not as difficult. I don't know about medicine um, because uh, I haven't worked in that context, but certainly if you think about nursing <laughs> yeah. and background in speech pathology, yes. Um, 
they're female dominated and so probably less barriers in fact in that pathway uh, at an institutional level that's a different a different kettle of fish mm. I'm not sure if I have specific advice about that I suppose what I would say is that you need to develop your own leadership style and to believe that it, it is effective and it might not be what you've seen other people do and how they lead but if it's not authentically about yourself then it's always going to be an uncomfortable uh, uncomfortable at work and who wants that every day yeah 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 um and i've been very fortunate to have great role models of female leaders and so that's been really helpful i think that's probably a you know a piece of advice but in, in the end, to some extent, you have to do it your own way. Uh, and I believe that for leadership positions, it's always about the right leader for the right time. And so if you have a way of doing things and probably a set of strengths, and that might be a great match in a particular role at a particular time, and it might not be for other things. And so it's actually finding those opportunities and fitting, I guess. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Thank you.